welcome to the Corona of Thorns podcast. I'm Father Peter Swines, and today is the 18th Sunday in Ordinary Time. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Draw near to your servants, O Lord, and answer their prayers with unceasing kindness that for those who glory in you as their creator and guide, you may restore what you have created and keep safe what you have restored. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. Amen. A reading from the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, the preacher says. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. For so it is that a man who has laboured wisely, skilfully, and successfully must leave what is his own to someone who has not toiled for it at all. This too is vanity and great injustice. For what does he gain for all the toil and strain that he has undergone under the sun? What of all his laborious days, his cares of office, his restless nights, This too is vanity. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In every age, O Lord, you have been our refuge. In every age, O Lord, you have been our refuge. You turn men back to dust and say, Go back, sons of men. To your eyes a thousand years are like yesterday, come and gone, no more than a watch in the night. In every age, O Lord, you have been our refuge. You sweep men away like a dream, like the grass which springs up in the morning. In the morning it springs up and flowers, by evening it withers and fades. In every age, O Lord, you have been our refuge. Make us know the shortness of our life, that we may gain wisdom of heart. Lord, relent. Is your anger forever? Show pity to your servants. In every age, O Lord, you have been our refuge. In the morning, fill us with your love. We shall exult and rejoice all our days. Let the favour of the Lord be upon us. Give success to the work of our hands. In every age, O Lord, you have been our refuge. A reading from the letter of St. Paul to the Colossians. Since you have been brought back to true life with Christ, you must look for the things that are in heaven, where Christ is, sitting at God's right hand. Let your thoughts be on heavenly things, not on the things that are on the earth, because you have died, and now the life you have is hidden with Christ in God. But when Christ is revealed, and He is your life, you too will be revealed in all your glory with Him. That is why you must kill everything in you that belongs only to earthly life, fornication, impurity, guilty passion, evil desires, and especially greed, which is the same thing as worshipping a false god, and never tell each other lies. You have stripped off your old behaviour with your old self, and you have put on a new self 
which will progress towards true knowledge the more it is renewed in the image of its creator. And in that image there is no room for distinction between Greek and Jew, between the circumcised or the uncircumcised, or between barbarian and Scythian, slave and free man. There is only Christ. He is everything and he is in everything. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Alleluia, alleluia. Happy the poor in spirit. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. Alleluia. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. A man in the crowd said to Jesus, Master, tell my brother to give me a share of our inheritance. My friend, he replied, who appointed me your judge? or the arbitrator of your claims. Then he said to them, Watch, and be on your guard against avarice of any kind. For a man's life is not made secure by what he owns, even when he has more than he needs. Then he told them a parable. There was once a rich man who, having had a good harvest from his land, thought to himself, What am I to do? I've not enough room to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll pull down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods in them. And I will say to my soul, my soul, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years to come. Take things easy, eat, drink, have a good time. But God said to him, fool, this very night the demand will be made for your soul. And this hoard of yours... Whose will it be then? So it is when a man stores up treasure for himself in place of making himself rich in the sight of God. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. If you remember a few weeks ago, we had the Gospel of Martha and Mary. (laughs) And Martha comes to Jesus and says, Hey, Lord, tell my sister to get up and help me with the serving. Uh, Well, we have a similar situation here today. (laughs) Hey, Lord, tell my brother to do this. Well, it didn't work out quite as Martha expected. Um, Perhaps we get a good sense that it might not be the best way of approaching our Lord Jesus by telling him what to do. I reckon that's a little tip for all of us. But he does it anyway, right? He says, Master, tell my brother to give me a share of our inheritance. Now, in the dispute between him and his brother, he's already determined who's in the right, who's in the wrong. And so he says to Jesus, Hey, tell my brother that I'm right and he's wrong. It's a question of justice, I guess. But Luke doesn't tell us whether or not this man has been hard done by. Maybe he was, who knows? Perhaps his father's will had indeed divided the inheritance a certain way and his brother wasn't honouring his father's wishes. But it seems as though, well, the Lord's not going to get dragged into this family dispute. In his response is perhaps a little bit surprising. He says, My friend, who appointed me your judge or the arbitrator of your claims? It's surprising, I guess, because, you know what, yes, 
the Lord Jesus is the judge. We say it in the creed that he'll come to judge the living and the dead. And we acknowledge that he's the son of the father and the mediator between God and man. He's the judge. He is the arbitrator. But the judgment that the Lord offers in this moment isn't simply in the affair between this man and his brother. He now sets about teaching about avarice and greed. The Lord here isn't going to judge about cash. The Lord is going to judge about the heart. I think that also shows us something about Jesus. He's not so interested in the inheritance. He's interested in this man himself. So subtly, very subtly, the Lord shifts the priority away from the question of what this man has in terms of possessions and turns toward who this man is in terms of virtue. So, you know, if we were to paraphrase Jesus, it might run something like this. My friend, don't look at your wallet and get angry that something of value is missing. Look to your heart and see if something of true value is missing. The Lord Jesus, the judge, correctly prioritises being over having. And this can serve as a bit of a corrective in our own prayer. In our petitions to Jesus, when we walk up and speak to him, we can be tempted to put words in his mouth too. Lord, make it such that I receive what's owed to me and that I get what I really deserve. Hey, just as a little aside, always be careful in asking God to give you what you deserve. You just might get it. But it might well be in those moments when we turn to the Lord and we speak with him that that actually his response is one that asks us to go beyond the superficiality of our requests to look more deeply at our hearts. We might get the same response from our Lord Jesus. Why are you so concerned with what you have and so little concerned with who you are? Don't just have more. Be more. The Lord makes an interesting comparison at the end of the gospel. You know, he says, you know, well, you can store up treasure for yourself in this place or you can make yourself rich in the sight of God. It's a beautiful distinction between having riches and being rich. Turns out they're not the same thing, it seems. To be rich in the sight of God. Now, this is where the parable that Jesus tells just hits us between the eyes. Because, you know, the man of the parable, what's happening here? He's rich in terms of his possessions, but he's lost sight of the fact that his possessions, they're not actually properly, strictly his. That makes him a fool. You made a fundamental mistake. You thought that these things were yours. But you know what? This very night, the demand is going to be made for your life. And these possessions of yours, whose will they be? They're not yours anymore. They're someone else's. Now, funnily, remember the question which provoked this parable. 
You know, this bloke says, tell my brother to give me the share of the inheritance. Well, you know what? Your possessions, you're going to leave them behind. It's going to become someone else's inheritance and they're going to squabble over it. And it might not even end up where you want it to. You have no control over your possessions anymore. They're not even yours. What a mistake to have thought that they were yours in the first place. Now, we can see in this parable, one who is already a wealthy man hits it big. He's got a big win, a big harvest, and he becomes even wealthier. And, you know, will build new barns in order to safeguard this newfound wealth. He's obviously not scratching out a living. You know, he's not striving to make ends meet. There's an excess that he's looking to cling to. And when all is ready, this is what he says to himself. My soul, you have plenty of good things laid by for many years to come. Take things easy. Eat, drink, have a good time. And it's here that the problem comes forward. He's bought into the idea that his wealth is sufficient to give him what he wants. That wealth makes it possible for him to relax, to enjoy the things of life. Eat, drink, be merry. And sure, it does all that. But maybe you've misunderstood the true value. Because at the end of the day, even a big barn chock full of grain will not finally be yours. We hear how the parable continues, right? God calls this man a fool. Because all the efforts he went to will come to nothing. The demand will be made for his life and he'll have to leave his harvest and his barn to someone who didn't work for it. And knowing how this parable ends, when we hear this man say to himself, take things easy, eat, drink, have a good time, you know, we can tend to think that these are the kinds of famous last words that tempt fate and that prove that this man really is a fool. But it's here that we probably need to be a little honest with ourselves. You know, we can happily acknowledge that this guy's behaving like a fool because, you know, we can see how the story works out for him. But perhaps his words are actually the practical principle by which we live our lives. We might not say it in quite such stark terms, but... Do we quietly expect that our story will have a different ending and that we will be able to eat and drink and take things easy? I suppose it provokes a really uncomfortable question. Is this how I actually live? In my mind, I may well believe that being is more important than having. And that it's important to store up treasure in heaven where it can't be taken from me, where it can truly be my possession. But though that may be my sincere opinion, and it might well be the way in which I want to live my life, is that in fact how it plays out? The foolishness of the man in the parable comes from the fact that he sought to find security and happiness in life in possessions. And so he organized his life around the attainment and protection of that which he presumed would be secure and happy, that which would truly be his. Do we do the same? 
And the odds are we probably wouldn't say it out loud or hold it formally as an opinion, but is it actually the practical principle around which our lives are organized? Yes, we all need to work. We all need to plan for our future. We all need to be financially responsible. But has my wealth, my reputation, my power, my influence, has that become the practical centre of my life and the implicit goal of all my acting? If so, I'm a fool. I'm as foolish as the man in the parable because the demand will be made for my life too and all of these things will ultimately come to nothing. And at the end of my life, ultimately, with what do I appear before the judge? Nothing but myself. So I'd better be rich in the sight of God. That means finally not having more, but being more. When we go back to the gospel text, we remember that the parable, it was provoked by that question of the man in the crowd who wants Jesus to demand his brother to cut him in on the inheritance. But Jesus doesn't get dragged into this matter of trying to help the man increase his wealth. Instead, he poses the question of the heart and its captivity to greed. Are you really getting rich in the way that matters most? Well, there's that question to us. What do I truly believe will make me happy and therefore becomes the principle around which I organise my life? Do I tell God with my lips that I love him and trust him and store up treasure in heaven while at the same time quietly still building bigger barns? Thanks for praying with us, and may God bless you abundantly, so that this day may give glory to God the Father.